0: This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 156, October 20, 1987. On the last Easy Chair, I discussed a number of things, and I made reference to a book and said I would deal with it on another occasion. That book is Maury Terry, The Ultimate Evil, an Investigation into America's Most set, a Dangerous Satanic Cult, published in 1987 by Doubleday and Company. This book describes the work of an investigative reporter. What he found was that in the famous trial of uh, Berkowitz, the man who some years ago was... Uh, Arrested for murders and uh, advertised as a result of something he had written as Son of Sam. In investigating this case, he had reason to believe that Sam was arrested and was being tried to put a stop to all the agitation over the cases. He believed that Sam Berkowitz was indeed guilty of or David Berkovitz, was guilty of one or two of the uh, crimes. A series of cultic murders, brutal murders, all of innocent young women. One of the police detectives agreed with him. When they began the investigation, they ran into all kinds of roadblocks. The detective was demoted. Subsequently, when he retired, an attempt was made to prevent him from drawing his pension. In the course of his investigation, what he did demonstrate was that indeed there was a cult, a church, a satanic church, Church of the Process, one of many such satanic churches, which was behind these things, which believed in ritual murder and sacrifice, in drinking the blood of victims, and of police dogs, because German Shepherds represent a hated group, the police. As he proceeded with his investigation, which included the religious, satanic background of Manson, of the Stanford Chapel murder, of the Bismarck, North Dakota murder, and much more, whenever he was close to somebody who was involved, that person was killed. This even reached up into the very high levels, multimillionaires, so that, by way of conclusion, he says that he has demonstrated that this group exists, that, uh, They do operate an elite hit squad for various satanic groups involved in drug and pornography. The Church of the Process came here from England. And he says there is no insulating middle America. The power of this movement is beginning to affect the whole country. He says that these people are interested in drugs for their own parties and to make money. He believes that some of the people at the very top, powers that prevented any real investigation, may not believe in all the mythology of Satan which the cult propagates. But what they do believe is that people can be led and used and used in a very effective way. The group involves drugs, pornography, it involves child prostitution prostitution and child pornography and also call-girl circles. It is very powerful. Moreover, The ideology of these groups is apparent in heavy metal music, in a great many of the rock band music. For example, here are two things coming from the Summit Journal, which are parts of rock band music. The first, sacrifice, oh so nice, sacrifice to Lucifer, my master, Bring the chalice, raise the knife, welcome to my sacrifice. Plunge the dagger in her breast, I insist. S-A-C-R-I-F-I-C-E, demons rejoice, sacrifice, sacrifice, name your price. And another, we're possessed by all that is evil, the death of you, God. We demand, we spit at the virgin you worship and sit at Lord Satan's left hand. Now this is the kind of music that teenagers are listening to and are making multi-multi-millionaires out of the people who promote this kind of thing. We are in a crisis and in that crisis the church is doing little and is by and large willfully impotent. We have groups like The scientist Edmund Leach, who said, There can, I quote, there can be no source for moral judgments except the scientist himself. In traditional religion, morality was held to derive from God, but God was only credited with the authority to establish and enforce moral rules because he was also credited with supernatural powers of creation and destruction. Those powers have now been usurped by man and he must take on the moral responsibility that goes with them. This is from an article, We Scientists Have the Right to Play God. Moreover, as the sociologist Nisbet has pointed out, and rightly so, that environmentalism is now a religion. We would add that it is a religion in terms of Genesis 3.5, every man being his own God. And yet at the same time saying, I'm not to blame, the environment did it to me. We have de-Christianized our schools and they are now for the destruction of Christianity. It is interesting that uh, as... Herbert Schlossberg and Marvin Olasky in Turning Point, a Christian worldview declaration published by Crossway Books this year, 1987, points out that in the public schools, and I quote, a textbook description of the first Thanksgiving neglected to identify to whom the pilgrims were giving thanks. When one child told her mother that Thanksgiving was when the Pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians, the mother called the principal and suggested that it might be educational to point out that Thanksgiving was when the Pilgrims thanked God. The principal of this New York suburban school replied, that's your opinion, well, That's the kind of thing that prevails today. And what are Christians doing about it? nothing. Just uh, three weeks ago, today, I was a witness in a trial in the South in a Bible Belt state of several churches. The trial was going to last three weeks for sure. It was a trial of a number of churches because they refused to go along with a welfare department regulation that in their activities, whether daycare or Christian school or Sunday school or any youth activities, children's activities, that there be no spanking. In fact, that there be no deprivation. No one be told to sit in a corner or to be told they don't get their treat. These churches, because they resisted, were being accused of child abuse. No parent had filed a complaint, but that was the charge. And the state attorney, in the course of cross-examining me, called attention to the fact that these churches were operating using a child abuse manual. The name of that child abuse manual was the Holy Bible. Now, where were the Christians in that Bible Belt state? They were certainly not in the courtroom. They were not protesting to the governor. They were doing nothing apart from the ministers of the churches involved. The courtroom was empty. The Christians didn't care enough to be there. And as... One minister told me that in that state, if the devil ran for governor on the Repub- on the Democratic ticket, most of the church people would vote for him, which tells you what their faith is. I received today something in the mail from a friend who... is in Africa, was born there and is making a stand against the state control of the churches and of Christianity. Now, I have heard church leaders speak very favorably of the prime minister and of the minister of education in that state and routinely so. And I've read such statements. Why? Because both men are churchmen. But what do they believe? The minister of education has his own version of the Lord's Prayer. Let me read it. Our Father, which art in the ghetto, degraded is your name. Thy servitude abounds. Thy will is mocked as pie in the sky. Teach us to demand our share of gold. Forgive us our docility as we demand our share of justice. Lead us not into complicity. Deliver us from our fears. For ours is thy sovereignty, the power and the liberation forever and ever. Amen. And another poem, the same Christian in his Prayer of Anguish as it's titled. Quite a few verses, but I'll just read the last eight lines. It's written in mock uh, dialect because the man is a well-educated man gonna stop giving you preacher my money to help the white man run my life gonna learn about Malcolm Africa Max and make it back in the pad with my wife gonna sell my Bible and buy me a gun then I'll get my freedom this very day I'll shoot white honkies black house niggers and you're behind too God if you get in my way now that's the church that's the church. And it's doing nothing to deal with the issues at hand. This is not the way it once was. The church at one time did have an active role. We'll come to that a little later. But meanwhile, humanism has nothing to offer. Let me read to you the statement of an anthropologist with which he concludes his book on the Melanesian peoples. This is Philippe Diolet, The Forgotten People of the Pacific, published by Barons in Woodbury, New York, in nineteen seventy six. The Forgotten People of the Pacific is, as I said, about the Melanesians, people who well now they've stopped some of their practices such as cannibalism and human sacrifice still have things such as homosexuality as a routine thing male transvestites and the women folk regularly nurse the baby pigs at their breasts they put that high an evaluation on their baby pigs But does the author, of this anthropologist or writer, feel that these people should change, that they should grow, that they should develop other stan- uh, standards? Not at all. He says in the conclusion of his book, and I quote, the fact is that the world cannot remain stationary. But it is wrong to force people to change. It is equally wrong to force them to remain the same so that we may preserve their originality and their innocence. Cultural immobility exists only in the imaginations of anthropologists and curators of museums. Who are we in any event to teach the way to happiness? Surely we cannot hold ourselves up as examples. Have we been able, with all our dizzying philosophies and our glittering technologies, to evolve a way of living that conforms to our interior needs and offers us contentment? It is not uh, impossible that the forgotten peoples of the Pacific may become our teachers rather than our disciples. For the moment, only for a brief moment, I fear, their homes are sanctuaries of humanity." What would it be like, I wonder, if in contemplating these last vestiges of the humanism of savagery, we were finally to learn the secret, the secret that we have always sought and always ignored, the secret of being at peace with ourselves and our environment, Now, that's the great secret of humanism and of education today. There's nothing worse than our civilization and Christianity is responsible for it. I had a professor tell me that. Our civilization is the most depraved thing in the world and Christianity is responsible for it. Whereas the savage peoples of the world are the only decent, good people. And who are we to correct them in their cannibalism. Those are important to their way of life and their faith. I wish some of these people would offer themselves as food for these cannibals. But this is what we have. This is the kind of approach that marks education. Because if you do not have a faith in God, in Christ, you are going to look at the world and say, why should it be changed? What constitutes good and evil? Why is something right and something else wrong? For example, one of the socialists who is a very prominent writer in this country and has been prominent in several administrations in his influence, Michael Harrington, in a book I cited about a year ago, The Politics at God's Funeral, the Spiritual Crisis of Western Civilization, raises a question twice in his book, which he feels is the key question of our time, and I would say For him it is. I quote, How do we now deal with what Isaiah Berlin has called the central question of politics, the question of obedience and coercion? Why should I obey anyone else? If society no longer provides a plausible answer, Because its most prominent spokesperson in this area, God, is dying, isn't that precisely one of the factors making for the fragmentation, bewilderment, and anxiety which can be observed in every Western society today? And again on page 207 he raises the question, in a society in which the legitimacy of political power is no longer cloaked in the aura of God. Why obey the law? Why die for the common good? Unquote. Well, that's why the schools are what they are. It, they have no standard of good and evil. Why live or die for anything? This is why, as Sam Blumenfeld of our staff has pointed out, the schools now educate for dying. The children are taught that there is no good reason for living. In some instances, they actually are taught to prepare for death, to write suicide notes. Is it any wonder that so many of them commit suicide? Is it any wonder that we have lawlessness? Remember, almost a generation and a half, perhaps two generations ago, Justice Brandeis said, and I quote, if the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself. It invites anarchy, unquote. How much more so when the, the civil government attacks the foundation of law, God, attacks the foundation of morality, God, when it teaches systematically immorality in the schools, when it promotes abortion and homosexuality, when it funds groups that promote such things, what you have to say is that we are seeing organized evil and that the state has become not the defender of the good as Paul says it must be in Romans 13 but a terror to the good. Isn't that what it is in this southern state where the Bible is being called a child abuse manual? And nobody will get excited about it there or anywhere else. We are facing judgment because we deserve it. We deserve obliteration at the hand of God. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, as Jeremiah said, because we deserve to be wiped out. This is the direction our world is taking. And people will not wake up. And by the way, waking up means putting your money where your mouth is. One of the things, let me speak here personally, that turns my stomach every time I travel, and I do all the time, and I've spoken in the past month to hundreds and even thousands of people. And what do I get? Oh, Mr. Rushdoin, I can't wait for the Calcedon Report to come. It's the best thing I have ever read and I ask them, "Uh, what was your name? and they tell me and then I know immediately they've never sent in a penny and do you think God is going to bless them for that? and do you think God is going to bless the people who go to church and tell a minister what a marvelous sermon it is and contribute nothing or next to nothing? we face the judgment of God. And people have earned that judgment. They've worked for it. And then they're going to cry and whine, Why did this happen to me? Why did I lose my job? Why are we facing this and that fearful evil at the hands of foreign powers? Well, it's because that's what they've earned. That's what we as a people have earned. And we're going to reap God's judgment. We have seen the evil growing. And we do next to nothing about it. And people who are in the front lines and are fighting get only criticism by and large. Otto has talked very often when he comes back from his trips and he's away on one now on how many people come up to him. Thousands who speak with delight of the materials. If half of those ever contributed, we'd be able to do more. By the way, Otto Scott, this past week, spoke at a a conference in Southern California. The other two speakers were Vice President Bush and Governor Duke Majin of California. And all who were there and all the reports indicated that it was Otto Scott who carried the day, who alone faced up to the issues and confronted them with what is happening and the only solution. Well, people like to hear that. but all they're content with doing is hearing as though hearing were enough. What are they doing? What are you doing? Our world, our country, is on the brink of disaster. Well, we may go into slavery on the short term. In the long term, we're going to have a greater freedom and a greater triumph of Christianity than any of us can begin to imagine. But like the people who were led to the boundaries of the promised land and sentenced to die in the wilderness because they had been faithless to their God, They had served them with their lips, but not with their heart, mind, and being. So they died in the wilderness. So too. Unless this generation changes, it may die in the wilderness. In a wilderness of chaos, of economic disaster, of international disaster, every kind of disaster. I'm weary of people telling me that they belong to such and such a church and, and saying of course uh, we know it's not what it should be but it's the church my folks and my grandparents and my great-grandparents were a member of and we're going to try to recapture it. Well, what are you doing to recapture it? Nothing. Very little or nothing. Why not go out and help create a godly church? a godly society? Why stay with a building that is an empty hulk, empty of God, empty of Christ, and is under His judgment? Do you stay on a sinking ship because that's the one your parents and your grandparents and great-grandparents sailed on? Or do you get off the ship because it's doomed? Well, Maybe I sound too emphatic to suit some. But I see so much indifference everywhere I go. I know the Lord's going to take care of me, but what's he going to do to all these people who have nothing but pious gush to give to me and to Otto and everybody else? who think God is going to be grateful because they said something nice to us and they said that they liked us. We don't want to be liked and we don't want to be hated. We want to stimulate people to action for Jesus Christ, for his kingdom. They don't seem to be worried about their children and grandchildren, but it's time to be worried. I'm going to turn now to a very different kind of book. This book is over a hundred years old. It was 1879 when it was translated into English from the third German edition. So the first German edition preceded it by some years. This book is Gerhard Ullhorn, Uhlhorn, U H L H O R N, The Conflict of Christianity with Heathenism. You might find copies of this, rather battered copies, no doubt, in some of the used bookstores. My copy goes back to the 30s when I first read it. And I reread it uh, just this last month. The thing that is interesting about this book is that it tells us, of course, of the conflict of Rome and the early church. The Roman state was, like in the modern world, degenerate. As Seneca said, The aim of philosophy is to despise life. The meaning of life was gone. No one felt that uh, there was much to live for. Recently, the uh, film director, John Huston, died. And in an interview given not long before his death, he made this statement We are all losers. This was his article of faith. And going back to one of his earliest films starring his father, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, you see his perspective on life. We are all losers. This is a logical faith for the fallen man, for the unbeliever. The antithesis to that is a biblical faith which says, in Christ we are all winners, we are more than conquerors. But Christians don't live in terms of that. They seem to believe with John Houston, that we are all losers. Well, the interesting thing about this book is that it gives us a grim picture of the hostility of Rome to the church. The propaganda against the church. The early Christians were accused of cannibalism. and The the propaganda was that the communion service was a cannibalistic feast. They were accused of practicing incest and much, much more. And, being a Christian, had its price then, you did not get away with a slap on the wrist. Let me quote. Christian virgins, it is verily devilish, were condemned to be taken to the public brothels to be abandoned there to the most horrible abuse the heathen knew how highly the Christians esteemed chastity and that to them its loss was worse than death. And yet when the Christian virgin Sabina and Smyrna was apprised of this sentence, she replied, Whatever God wills. That was the heroism of martyrdom. That was to conquer all through Christ. A faith which so loved and suffered was invincible. Its victory was sure. And of it could the apostles say, even before the conflict had begun, Our faith is the victory which hath overcome the world. Unquote. Now that was the world these Christians lived in in the early church. And yet, before they even owned a building, they were doing some remarkable things. For example, at the Lord's Supper, they brought gifts, chiefly natural products. And from this they took what was necessary for the bread and wine of Communion, And the rest went to the clergy and the poor. Very early, they started a number of institutions. First, in terms of 1 Corinthians 6, courts to deal with justice. So they would not have to go to the Roman courts. They started houses to house orphans and to educate them. They also started old folks' homes. Furthermore, they established hospitals. Moreover, since in those days hotels were also houses of prostitution and a girl came with a room, and if you kicked the girl out, they'd send a boy in. They started houses to entertain Christian guests, to provide housing for them when they were traveling. This is the kind of thing the early church did. This is why they conquered. They created a godly government and even as the Roman government was collapsing because all around it evil was prevailing and it was a part of that evil increasingly. The Christians provided government. There's an interesting book written by a Jesuit, Michelle Riquet, R-I-Q-U-E-T, Christian Charity in Action, which describes what was done in those centuries and well into the Middle Ages. It was published some years ago, so it is now out of print. Uh, 1961. But In it, he has a great deal on the kind of thing that was done. Another aspect of their charity was ransoming prisoners, captives, anything and everything they could do to minister to human need. They did this because they felt that God required it of them. Moreover, in Constantinople... St. John Chrysostom, with a 100,000 members under his diocese, under his bishopric, was supporting 50,000 widows, orphans, needy people, elderly people, and yet he would preach with intensity. If you feel that what we are doing through the various ministries of the church absolves you of responsibility personally to take care of need where you see it and to bring needy people into your home, then God will judge you because we are all called to represent Christ. Well, we've forgotten that aspect of the ministry. In fact, we have suppressed it. What happened was that the poor tithe, which was once a part of law throughout the world, throughout Christendom, that is, and a part of the English-speaking world, and carried over to the colonies, began to wane. The Reformation in the area of theology and ecclesiology did much good, but it also did much damage because the tithe together with the property of the monasteries were transferred to the king. And the king began to control the church tithe and the poor tithe. And as a result, a problem of poverty and welfare began to develop. And that problem is with us still. And only Christians have the answer. They must restore their responsibility in Christ. One of the problems with the ancient Greeks was that they did nothing to minister to human need by and large because they believed progress was automatic, that things would take care of themselves insofar as they believed in a kind of progress because they tended to cyclical ideas. However, as Robert Nisbet, the sociologist, has pointed out in his History of the Idea of Progress, the Greeks... Contributed the seminal conception of the natural growth in time of knowledge and accordingly the natural advance of the human condition. Unquote. In other words, everything was going to get better with time. So, no need to worry about problems, time would take care of them. And we still quote proverbs that reflect the Greek point of view, time heals all wounds and time cares for all problems and so on and on. And as a result, we've neglected our duty. In fact, Catholics and Protestants have become better at hating each other than doing the will of the Lord. One of the things that is fearful is to go back and to read some of the literature or to see the names they call each other. Now, granted, there were real issues in the Reformation, and the Reformation was a necessity for both Protestantism and Catholicism. It did good, but in the process, much hatred developed. For example... According to Richard S. Dunn in The Age of Religious Wars, 1559-1689, to 1689, we read, and I quote, The Par- uh, Parisians continued to believe their league priests who taught that a good Catholic would eat his own children rather than submit to a heretic, unquote, meaning a Protestant is a pope. That's why Henry IV had to abjure Protestantism to become king of France. Was that unusual, that kind of thinking? No. The Protestants were reciprocating in kind. And the result was humanism triumphed as against both Protestantism and Catholicism. Both had become more concerned in fighting each other than in fighting for the faith. This, by the way, was true of the Jews at the time of our Lord. At the time of Christ, being Jewish, being a believer, had different meanings for different persons. For some, it was faithfulness to the temple ritual. For others, it meant freedom for Judea as a political organism. And so on and on. Every group had their own definition of what constituted Judaism and a good Jew. And as a result, the country forgot God. They warred against one another. And they neglected the prophet of whom Moses spoke, Jesus Christ. And we are doing the same today. The Old Testament and the New have a common ethical framework. They require us to serve the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and being and our neighbor as ourselves. This is the meaning of being God's people, of being the redeemed of God. Moreover, In both the Old and the New Testament, there is a statement made about poverty. In Deuteronomy 15.4, we read that if the people are faithful to God's every word, and I quote, there will be no poor among you. And in the New Testament, we read that when they were faithful and loved one another, and I quote from Acts 4.34, there were no needy persons among them, unquote. What have we done? We have reduced Christianity to a false concept of salvation. I won't go into an experience I had just... uh within the past month on a flight. In fact, it may be an account of it in the Calcedon report before too long. However, in the course of the conversation with this particular person, she was trying to tell me that a lot of the converts of this particular group were marvelous Christians, even though they were still on drugs, even though they were still involved in a number of things. She didn't say so, but some of them were still living out of wedlock with their uh, live-in boyfriend or girlfriend, and so on and on. She insisted they were saved, marvelously saved. And I said, I would be inclined to question their salvation. There are no fruits in their lives. Oh yes, they were fearful of hell and they came to Jesus and they know that He saved them from hell. And I told her with no small intensity, Jesus Christ does not save us from hell. He is our Savior from sin. Hell is only the consequence of our sin. And he didn't come to save us from hell, for heaven, as she insisted. He came to save us from sin and to make us his people, the people of righteousness, the people of justice. We have been saved, Paul tells us, that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled, put into force through us. If you feel you've been saved from hell and that's what your salvation is about, you're all wrong and you're still in sin because Jesus Christ is the Savior from sin and our sin is our attempt to be His God to determine good and evil for ourselves to see ourselves as our own law, to want to have our own way of life and have Jesus Christ as fire and life insurance agent support us in our life. It's no wonder that the converts of this group, which pulls in a $100 million a year, are on drugs after 13 years. And why not? They're not saved from sin. The group doesn't try to save them from sin. It just says, Jesus Christ is your Savior. Oh, by the way, she also said she was against lordship and dominion, preaching and teaching. Well, I think I've said enough on that subject. Let me go on to something else, but it is related. John Lofton gave me a copy of a book. The author is Elliot Leighton, L-E-Y-T-O-N, Compulsive Killers, the Story of Modern Multiple Murder. It was published by the New York University Press in 1986. It is a story of all the various multiple murder murderers. It's ugly reading, vicious, incredibly vicious people. But the thing that comes through is that these criminals were thoroughly modern people. They knew their psychiatry and they knew why they were doing what they did or thought they knew. It was society who was to blame. Or their parents who are to blame. One of the worst killers had studied psychology and so he knew all the jargon, but all of them were conversant. Even as I have found children of seven and eight have picked up the language. And they know that they can blame parents and others. In fact, as far back as the 50s, this one child who was willfully disobedient and flagrantly so, so outraged the teacher once at the Vacation Bible School that the teacher went after him with blood in her eye. And he cringed and said, Don't you hit me, don't you hit me. What I need is tender, loving care. love and affection, that sort of thing. Well, one of these multiple murderers said, why was the world against me? Another found meaning through destruction. Only by killing could he find meaning. One of the worst killers was a psychology graduate. and his interpretation of guilt was thoroughly in terms of it. And even after having confessed much, he said, I don't feel guilty for anything. I feel sorry for people who feel guilt. More than ever, I'm convinced of my own innocence. Here's a man who murdered 20, 30 girls. Why does he feel innocent? because society did certain things to him and therefore society is guilty. Another said, and I quote, the people I murdered had murdered me, unquote. It wasn't that he had ever met those people, but they had things he didn't have and therefore they were murdering him. they all had these common traits blaming one another. Of course, the author doesn't see those common traits and looks elsewhere for them. Some of the mass murderers uh, that are listed are Bundy, Kemper, DeSalvo, speck, herons, starkweather, and others. Many of these were interviewed. And the account, as I say, is a thoroughly horrifying one. But the conclusion that we must come to is that Original sin is exemplified by these people. The author is right when he says that these killers are not alien creatures with a deranged mind, but then wrong when he says alienated men with a disinterest in continuing the dull lives in which they feel entrapped. Rather, what we have to say is they are sinners, And they are sinners who are trying to justify themselves through their sin. One of them said, being a professionally perfect person, I hate the establishment. A professionally perfect person. Some of them hated those who are superior to them. Anyone better than they was somehow evil and had gained their position by evil and therefore had to be killed. So to excel was a sin in their eyes. The author, in fact, goes so far as to say, and I quote, yet what they are all orchestrating is a kind of social leveling in which they rewrite the universe to incorporate themselves. No one expressed this more clearly than Starkweather when he said that dead people are all on the same level. In other words, these mass murderers are doing the same thing as the socialists and the Marxists and a lot of people in other parties, Republican and Democrat. They're going to level everybody. They insist it is wrong to excel, and therefore those who excel must be leveled. So, we have a world in which a leveling is underway through politics and through murder. How are we going to change it? No way apart from Jesus Christ. No way. We're ready to do anything except support the work of reconstruction, further the work of reconstruction, take upon ourselves the task where we are of being a force for Christ. It's not the duty of just Chalcedon, but of every believer. And there is no future for us as a people unless we all see our responsibilities under God. When we do that, then the world will begin to change. What happened to the early church? The men who were martyred, lined up, Beheaded one after another, so that they had to have shifts of executioners. There were so many lined up to be killed. Virgins sent to houses of prostitution. It was a bitter and a difficult battle, but they fought it. That's how we got our freedom. If we don't work for our freedom, we will see our children's children reduced to the same level in order to fight their way back to freedom. The choice is yours. What are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord, must be the statement of all of us. God bless you as you make that effort. Pray for those who are under persecution in the United States, in the Soviet Union, and the world over. Begin by remembering them every day in your prayer. And God bless you as you serve Him. Good night, and thank you for listening.